We're so grateful to be able to come in the presence of God this morning to honor Him, praise His name, and glorify Him in the way we have in the songs that we've sung, in the prayers that have already been prayed, and especially in remembering His Son who came to this earth and lived and died for us. So thank you for being here to participate in glorifying the God of heaven and encouraging one another in our faith. And if you're visiting this morning, we really are happy that you can join in these activities with us. This morning we'll be talking again about our theme for the year. Uh, God's house is a house of prayer for all nations. And we at Eastside want to be a house of prayer. We'll be talking about this morning how prayer is a portal into the very presence of God. Science fiction fans and uh, now college sports fans also have become familiar with the concept of a portal. Uh, in college sports, we have this transfer portal thing where uh, one week uh, a college football or basketball player may be playing for one school and all of a sudden whoo, they're transported <laughs> over to another school and they're playing for them. In science fiction, uh, most of us who've seen a science fiction movie or read a science fiction book uh, in the last 50 years have come across this concept of a, a portal that maybe takes you from one time-space dimension to another time-space dimension. I understand that theoretical physicists say that that's theoretically possible, but not likely to ever happen. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it's in a lot of science fiction films. Uh, you just, you know, you walk through this door or this opening or this glowing thing, whatever it is, and all of a sudden you're a million miles or a million light years away in a whole different time. Well, all of that's really fascinating, and um, it's sort of something we've become familiar with. And when you think about especially the science fiction concept of a portal, you say, wow, we can, we can imagine this, and we can see how that could happen. We can even envision someone experiencing that. But when we go to God in prayer, what we experience is very much something like that, but it is a full spiritual reality. It's not science fiction. It's not something that happens between universities here on earth. We, in fact, go into the presence of God when we pray. There's an interesting passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 56 and verse 7. For God says, I will bring these people to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. The mountain of God is his kingdom in Old Testament prophecy. And Isaiah 56 is a prophecy concerning the Messiah's kingdom to come. And the promise of God is that he will bring his people into his presence, into his house of prayer, the very thing that we are striving to be at east side. And God promises to bring us to him to his presence. Prayer is a portal to God's throne. Access to a king's throne is typically restricted. Often, a few, if any, get to enter the presence of a great king. We find an illustration of that in the book of Esther in our Old Testaments. You may remember the remnants of the Babylonian captivity uh, were now uh, in 
Persian captivity. And one of them is elevated to the queen of Persia, Esther. There is an evil man by the name of Haman who comes up with a plot to destroy the people of God, all of the Jews in the lands of Persia. And it becomes uh, known to Mordecai, who is a relative of Esther's, and he tells her that we're going to have to do something about this. You're going to have to get the king to change his mind, to alter the edict, to do something, or all of us Jews are going to be slaughtered. So we come to Esther chapter 4 and verse 11, and messages are being sent between Esther and Mordecai about all of this. And Esther uh, sends a message to Mordecai and says to him in verse 11, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law. Put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. And I myself have not been called to go in the king these 30 days. So Esther the queen had not seen the king in his court for 30 days. And everybody knows the law. You go into the court of the king, if he doesn't invite you or give you grace by uh, extending his scepter to you, you're, you're a dead person. You'll be put to death. That was the law of the king. Because not just anybody could enter the court of Ahasuerus, known to secular history as Xerxes, a great and mighty king indeed, even in secular history. But you just couldn't walk in there. And if you did, you'd die. And as the text goes on, of course, a fascinating story that Mordecai challenges Esther to go and to plead the case of the Jews. And he says in verse 13, Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's place, in the king's palace, any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What, what, what a great thought as we live our own lives to realize that God puts his people in certain places to do good, and we have doors open of, of, of opportunity to do good in our lives, sometimes great good. And God just will empower us to do that and enable us to do that, but we have to have the courage to open the door. We have to have the courage to do what God's empowering us to do. Esther tells Mordecai to go gather the Jews and to fast. And she's going to go to the king. And she says, if I perish, I perish. What a tremendous, what a tremendous attitude. And so we open up chapter 5. And it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes. Notice that. And she stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. While the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, notice this, the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. What an amazing turn of events. And of course, because Esther finds this grace from the king, she requests eventually that those who are evil, who are against her people, 
The man, Haman, particularly would be put to death and that her people be allowed to defend themselves, and they were. And Israel, or the Jews at least, were saved in the Persian Empire. I want you to notice that the king accepted Esther without rebuke. He was receptive to granting her request up to half his kingdom. But I want you to notice that as she entered the king's court and sought to enter it, she was wearing her royal robes. I read a story the other day about a man. If I said his name, you might know who he is, but he's a preacher. And uh, he loves golf. And his desire was to get to see Augusta National Golf Course where the Masters is played. And so on an occasion, he got to do that. But he said when that happened, he really didn't feel like he was a part of it. He felt really out of place being who he was and you know, this really nice golf course and these rich people and all of that that went on with that. And so he really didn't feel like he, was, he belonged there. But he had a friend by the name of Scott Simpson. Scott Simpson happens to be a PGA golfer, or was at the time, and had recently won the U.S. Open. And uh, Scott was invited, of course, to play in the Masters as a result of that. And uh, he knew about his, his friend's desire to, you know, really see the, the golf course up close. And so uh, Scott Simpson, for the par three that they played the day before the Masters, Scott Simpson invited this guy to be his caddy, to be his caddy for that day. Of course, he knew nothing about caddying. But in, 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 in those days, and it may still be this way, I'm not sure, but the, the caddies at the Masters all wore green coveralls. And so it was their uniform. And so this guy's, inter, you know, he co- goes to the, the caddy shack, if you will, where all the guys are, are dressing and gets his uniform. And he said he put that green uniform on, started pulling Scott Simpson's uh, golf clubs around. He felt like he belonged. He got to see every inch of the golf course. And so it is with us. We have robes that have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. It's not that by our own merits we get to go to the throne of God. But it's that we have the uniform. The heavenly uniform that makes us fit to enter God's presence that was supplied uh, to us by the Lamb of God. And so looking again at the book of Isaiah in chapter 61 and verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, we come into the presence of God. Personally, and also in our prayers, Jesus made a way for us to enter God's presence. The New Testament teaches this explicitly. We learn in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Who enters the holiest? The priest does. 
the one with the proper garments, to go into the presence of God, to make the requests that need making. Who can enter there? We can. We have boldness to enter the holiest place, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus. I tell you that Jesus' blood is our portal into the presence of God. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We may enter. We may enter the throne room of the King of Kings, of God the Father, of an innumerable company of angels and of spirits of just men made perfect into Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, the writer observes that he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. I understand that that's not just talking about prayer, but it certainly includes prayer. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In Revelation 8, we're actually given a view into the throne of God. Actually, in several places in the book of Revelation, we're given uh, a visionary view into the throne room of God. But in chapter 8, there was an angel that had a golden censer, and he came and stood at the altar and was given much incense that he should offer it, it says, with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. Where are the prayers of God, prayers to God? Where, where are they in the throne room? They are right before the throne of God. In His presence is where those prayers exist in the throne room of God. Christ has made for us a garden of prayer and He's opened the gate for us to enter. It's interesting as you look at man's relationship with God through the Bible when, when man is in fellowship with God. It starts out, of course, at the creation. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the text says that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And it says the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I meditated on that passage this last week somewhat, and it's just, I like to garden. I know some of you do, too. And it never struck me before, so does God. God planted a garden and put man in the garden. And God was present with man in the garden. When Jesus walked this earth, when he was around Jerusalem, there was a garden where he often went to pray. John 18. We call it the Garden of Gethsemane. When you come to, again, the book of Revelation, you see that God's throne is in a place called paradise in which there is a tree for the healing of the nations and a river of water of life 
Revelation 2, 7 and Revelation 22, 1 and 2. So his throne room is like a garden, a place of beauty and peace filled with his glory and majesty. And there's a garden where Jesus is waiting. A beautiful garden, the garden of prayer. There my Savior awaits and he opens the gate to the beautiful garden of prayer. It was Christ who opened the gate. It was Christ who made the portal and is the portal into the presence of God. This is the reality of our prayer life. It's not that we have to imagine it like some science fiction movie, something that's only theoretical. This is real. That when we pray to God, our words are in His presence. And we are spiritually before Him in our prayers. We need to see that. We need to know that that's what's going on. It's not that we wonder if He hears us. We must never wonder if He hears us. For if we pray as God intended us to pray, when we finish praying, we know that we have been in His presence. Because we believe in Jesus. The garden of prayer. Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. He saw into the throne room of God as he prayed. Verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We, we I realize, don't see the throne of God as we pray, but it's where we are when we pray. This portal of prayer is prepared, as we've said, by Jesus. The Father will grant requests that are made in Jesus' name. Jesus makes this clear in giving some assurances to His apostles the night that He was betrayed, John 14, John 16. And I realize, and I want to be clear right here, that Jesus is making specific promises to His apostles, not all of which apply to us. I don't think everything that He says about their prayers necessarily applies to our prayers. But we can learn some things about the nature of prayer and why we pray in Jesus' name by looking at his instructions to the apostles. In chapter 14 and verse 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, I, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And yet he goes on in chapter 16 and explains he's not going to be with them for uh, very long. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to be with them. But they can still... They can still get their request granted because the Father is going to give them whatever they ask if they ask in His name. Look at it with me in John 16 and verse 22. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So it goes from, ask me and I'll give you, to, you won't ask me. 
Ask the Father. He'll give it to you in my name. So he's talking about this transition from the time that he's with them to the time that he's no longer with them. And how their prayers will work. Then in John 16 and verse 26, he says, In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. Our prayers are effective when we get to go into the presence of God because of Jesus' name, because of who He is, and because we love Him. And the Father loves Him. And it's our common love of Jesus then that empowers prayer. Jesus says, because you have loved me, the Father loves you and will grant your request. The Father grants requests because He loves those who love His Son. The significance then of praying in Jesus' name should not escape us. I think I need to pause here to note with you that when I'm talking about praying in Jesus' name, I'm not saying anything, and the Bible doesn't particularly say anything about saying Jesus' name. We almost always at the end of our prayers say in Jesus' name. It's fine. It's a great habit. I recommend doing it. But it's not particularly what the Bible means when it talks about praying in Jesus' name. Saying in Jesus' name is not some kind of a magic bullet. It's not a genie in a lamp sort of situation where if you, if you add that little, you know, uh, saying, then God's got to give you what you want because you said that. that. That's not how it is. It's not a spiritual abracadabra. Okay? That's not what it is. There are people in the world today who believe that that's what it is. That if they say in Jesus' name, that it's a, you know, uh, uh, say it and claim it kind of a thing when you go to God in prayer. You just, I have to say that and then you claim it. It's yours because it's, God's got to give it to you because you said the name. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. The Lord is not your servant. You are His. We need to have that truth firmly in our hearts when we pray to Him. Lots of things are to be done in Jesus' name. And are done in Jesus' name. To do something in Jesus' name is to do it with His authority. His permission. For the purpose He has assigned or for His cause. And in fact, we've seen because of relationship that we have with Him. We can do things with His authority. By His permission. For His purposes. And for His cause. Because we have relationship with Him. Because we are in Christ. Because... Among other things, we have been baptized into Christ. You realize Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, we're baptized in the name of Jesus. Acts 8 and verse 16, people were baptized in Jesus' name. In Acts 10 and verse 48, the household of Cornelius was baptized in Jesus' name. Miracles were performed in Jesus' name. The lame man at the beautiful gate, for instance, In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Preaching was done 
in Jesus' name. Paul uh, spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus in Acts 9 and verse 29. Jesus commanded that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Luke chapter, four and verse four, Luke chapter 24 and verse 47. So we're commanded to do many things in Jesus' name. For instance, we're commanded to withdraw from the order, disorderly in Jesus' name. Those who are Christians, members of a church, they're embroiled and in, 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 uh, addicted to some sin and they won't repent of it. They're admonished. They still won't repent. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6, We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 4, When you're gathered together along with, along with my spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. Again, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is that by which we withdraw from those who need withdrawing from. We give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20. And in fact, everything that we do in our lives because of our connection with Christ, because of who He is and our commitment to Him, everything we do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3 and verse 17 says, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So I think you can see from all of that that doing something in Jesus' name is not exactly saying His name when you're doing it. <laughs> Although in any of those things, it would be fine to do and good to do. But what it is, is it's using our connection and relationship with Him and taking advantage of the things that He has provided for us through His blood, through His power, to do the things He wants done, to do the things He's allowed us to do, and to carry on His cause through our lives in this world. So that brings us to praying in Jesus' name. What's really involved in it? We pray in Jesus' name because He's the one who made the portal. He is the portal. He is enabling prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, I want you to notice this. This is one of those passages uh, you kind of have to read uh, from one verse on through to a four, about four verses to get a connection that's really vital. Start out in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. Christ is the one who brought God and man together. He is the one who brings us together. As we've already seen in Hebrews, who enables us to go into the presence of God. He is the mediator between God and man. He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which Paul says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ Jesus, not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire therefore. You see that in verse 8? I desire therefore. Therefore, from, from what? <laughs> Based on what? What's he talking about? I desire therefore, <clears throat> because there's one mediator. Going back to verse 5. That's, that's what he's getting back to. I desire therefore, what Paul? 
that the men pray everywhere. That's what? Lifting up holy hands without wrath and disputing. Well, how can the men pray everywhere? Because they have a mediator who's brought them to God. And his name is Jesus. And so it does not matter where you are. But if you're a child of the king, you can enter his throne. You can enter his throne room because of Jesus Christ. Praying in Jesus' name means we approach God based on his merit, not ours, as we've already said. As Christians, each of us are in Christ. Being in Christ has restored our severed relationship with a holy God. And so he allows us into his presence. Without Christ, our own names have no power, no privilege. I've never had the FBI come to my door. I have had the police come to my door a couple of times. One time, a couple of times in the middle of the night, actually, when somebody was breaking into our car here. Uh, But that's another story. But when... When the FBI comes to your door, open up. Open up. This is Carl. Open up. You're going to open up for Carl? Carl, the FBI agent, doesn't say, open up. This is Carl. Carl says, open up, FBI. Or open up, Athens police, right? Whoever they are. Because then they have authority to ask you to open. Authority that you recognize. When I go to God, God, open up. This is Steve. That's not going to work. I'm coming into your throne. I'm Steve. I'm coming into your throne room in the name of Jesus, your son, Father. And the gate's wide open. Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come boldly to the throne of grace because Christ is our high priest, our sacrifice, and our intercessor, our mediator. Praying in Jesus' name means praying in a way that is consistent with God's will and with the will of Jesus. This is the confidence that we have in Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. See, it's all about our connection with Jesus and our desire to forward His cause in this world and in our lives. Praying in the name of Jesus means treasuring God's glory and not our own. We're not praying for glory for ourselves. We're praying for things that will bring glory to Him and to His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus had told the apostles back there in John 14, He says, whatever you ask in My name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus reflects on this a number of times. The Father is glorified in the Son, and when we glorify the Son and use what the Son has provided for us, we're glorifying the Father. Philippians chapter 2 as we close. Philippians 2 and verse 9. Therefore God has also highly exalted Him, It's highly exalted, the Son, and given Him 
a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Whether things on the earth or things under the earth. And that all should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. In Jesus' name. Right now, there may be someone in this room who has no access to the throne room of God because you've not been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins and your robes aren't white because the blood has not been applied to your life. It's a terrible thing to, to live without access, real access to the throne room of God. I can tell you that. But you can have it this morning by naming the name of Jesus, confessing Him as Christ, your Lord and the Son of God, and turning away from sin, being baptized for the remission of your sins. And you too can be a child of the King. This is the invitation. We'd ask you to come while we stand and sing.